welcome Pastor Todd and Jordan. Thanks, Roger. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good to be with you uh, again this morning, and um, welcome to message three in our series, Is Christmas Unbelievable? And uh, Jordan, if you were here last week, you know Jordan did all the heavy lifting in last week's message. I mean, he took the bulk of the teaching. I basically was just here to ask a few questions, stitch a few things together, but you did all the heavy lifting last week, and I'm, I'm going to have you do that again this week. Okay. Does that sound good? Yeah. Um, as long as you're good to take the brunt of things next week. Is that cool? I'm moving on the 22nd. You're moving on the 22nd? Yeah. You're moving three days before Christmas? Yeah. You thought that was a good idea? Seemed like a good idea at the time. Are you, expect, are you expecting family to help with that move? That'd, that'd be nice. I'll, I'll ask Cheryl. I'll see what we're doing. <laughs> oh, um, so, uh, yeah, so I'll, Jordan's going to take the bulk of it today. I'm going to take the bulk of it uh, next week as we conclude uh, the series. Uh, but why don't you just go ahead, get us right into message three here, We've got Jordan. a lot to talk about this week. We have a lot. And, and I want to start with this. Um, of course, this series is inspired by a book uh, written by Rebecca McLaughlin. We've talked a lot about that. We'll talk a little bit more about it toward the end of the message today as well. But she actually tweeted out a, a super interesting research study that was done by uh, Lifeway Research back in 2018. And the main finding of that study was that 22% of Americans say they could accurately tell the biblical account of the Christmas story. 22%. Yeah, let me say that again. 22% of Americans say they could accurately tell the biblical account of the Christmas story. I mean, that's shocking. That's it shockingly is. low. It is. There's only one in five Americans that's right, can do that's this. That's right. And uh, it goes on to say that 31% of Americans could, could tell the story, say they could tell the story, but think they would miss a few details. 25% of them says, said they could give a quick overview, and then 17% of Americans said they couldn't tell any of it. For you, for those of you keeping track at home, that's, that's 42% of Americans who said that they could, at the very best, give a brief overview of the Christmas story. And I think that we could all say with great confidence that those numbers would probably be lower here in Canada. Right. A country that is decidedly less biblically conscious. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. So all the Christmas plays, all, all the Christmas sermons, the Sunday school lessons, the storybooks, the TV specials, nativity scenes, and four out of five Americans don't have it. Couldn't tell it. Mm-hmm. Now, Scott McConnell, the executive director of Lifeway Research, wrote this in uh, the study. He said, while fictional Christmas stories seem to multiply each year, the biblical account of, Christ, of Jesus Christ's birth is unchanged <clears throat> since it was recorded in the Bible. Hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Yet ha- almost half of Americans do not think they could share the Christmas story somewhat accurately from memory. Of all the Christmas programs churches offer in December, possibly the most important is simply reading the biblical account of the Christmas story itself. I mean, that really is the heart behind why we are doing this series, so that we can know the truths of the Christmas, Christmas story and be able to, uh, to believe these truths in our heart, but then also be able to share it with other people as well. Yeah, it's, it's just tough to hear that so many people don't even know the story. It's I mean, true. if we just got down to the basics of it, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons why that may be today, and as we you know, live out our lives in this part of the 21st century, part of the issue is certainly that we live in po- the post-Christian times, like mm-hmm. post-modernism, modernism has so consumed our culture, we, we definitely live in a post-Christian time. Uh, but um, also, it's in, in terms of Christians themselves, I think it's poor discipleship, churches yep. haven't taught it 
yep. well enough. Mm -hmm. It's, if I can say this, it's lazy Christians who haven't discipled themselves, haven't taken responsibility to actually know these things themselves. It's also, and we talked about this in the first message, it's also that the story has been encumbered mm -hmm. by details that are not biblical details of the story. So there's all kinds of extras that we've layered on top of the story yeah. so that the simplicity of what we've been given in the Gospels is lost to us because we don't know how to, how to work through the fact and fiction um, of it. And then um, I'd add this too, that, that it has to do also with, with the story being relegated to the realm of all Christmas stories, which is that of mythology. Mm. That, it, that it's just another one of the stories we tell ourselves at Christmas to teach ourselves, you know, nice little lessons about generosity and giving and thinking of others and, and all of that. And so Jesus gets lumped in with, with Santa and with Frosty and with Rudolph and, and with the little drummer boy, or he's, he just becomes another movie character for us, like all of our favorite Christmas movies. Right. So he's, he's Ralphie, he's, he's Luther Crank, he's Buddy the Elf, he's Kevin McAllister. You he's know. John McClane. Right, because... If you know, you know, it is a Christmas movie. Right. Okay? Of course it is. Right. And so we, so we want to know, uh, know this story accurately, and we want to believe it confidently. And that's really the, the purpose for this series. And, and again, perhaps the reason we don't tell it or know it is because it seems even to us, as Christians, it seems like mythology. It seems like just a fanciful little story. I mean, think about it. There's angel appearances, these heavenly messengers. There's these dreams and visions that multiple people are having that are giving them details of the story and leading them to do certain things. There's the, the miraculous appearance of this star. And of course, the granddaddy of them all, there's the virgin birth right. of Christ. And all of these are miracles. And, and uh, we have, um, we have this, this virgin birth kind of capping it all off. And the idea of a woman who has never been with a man having a child to us just seems like eight tiny reindeer carrying a guy around on Christmas to deliver gifts to the world, or at least the Christian world. It's, it's the same to us, or it's become the same uh, to us. And so this message is about the plausibility of the miracles that we read in the nativity story, and especially the plausibility of the virgin birth. Right. And so the question that we want to ask first is this one, and I'm going to ask you to keep it PG, um, because, you know, and it, we don't want to hurt the kids, and there might be some kids watching on the live stream. Yeah, let's just and, say if you don't understand anything we're talking about, ask your parents, okay? Ask your parents. Let's just set that up. Because we're going to be talking about a virgin birth. Right. So we're going to okay. talk about mechanics Yep. a little bit. So how, keep it PG, Yep. how was Jesus conceived? We'll do you better. We'll keep it G. We'll go right to the scriptures. Okay, how about that? We have two accounts in Sometimes the Gospels. Sometimes the scriptures aren't G. It's fair. It's fair. We have two accounts in the Gospels of the virgin birth, Matthew, the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospels of Luke. Let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke and what he says about it. This is Luke 1, starting in verse 28. And he, speaking of an angel, came to her, Mary, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, uh, the Son of God. Long story short, the conception of Jesus was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit to cause Mary to conceive apart from the normative ways that conception occurs. Okay? Normative ways. Mary had the X chromosome. Spirit had the Y chromosome. The baby boy was formed in her womb. And that's where we'll go with that. It's well done. That was well done. So the uniqueness of Jesus, because that's what we're talking about here, obviously, the God-man, the incarnation of God, but the yep. uniqueness of Jesus, what we're talking about here in this conception is not just physical conception, but there is the metaphysical mm. and the physical happening at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And, and this, this, of course, this account, as we read it, is one of the few places that we, that we read and hear tangibly of how <clears throat> God the Spirit works. But it is, of course, consistent with its character given that one of the other places that we hear explicitly of the working of the Spirit comes during uh, the creation account, right? In Genesis chapter 1, the first few verses of the Scriptures. This is Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here it is. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Mm. So it stands to reason for us then that as the Spirit of God was active in the creation of the world, he would most certainly be active in the creation of a human being inside of another human being by special or unusual means, okay? As the Son of God enters creation and begins the work of making salvation possible for us. And creation, creation of course, is, is really the first and incredible miraculous claim that we see in the Bible and that Christianity makes. The fact that there is a three-in-one Father, Spirit, and Son, God, that existed for all of eternity and who created all things by the word of his power. And if that God exists, if he did those things, then there's no reason for us not to believe that the same God was able to make a human being without a human father. It's, a, it's such an interesting place to go with this, because in order to get us to believe the miracles of the nativity, mm-hmm. you're taking us back to the creation. That's right. And in essence, what you're saying is in order for us to believe the lesser miracle, all we need to do is believe the greater yep. miracle. Yep, exactly. And, um, and we're going to come back to this because there are plenty of people, and I, I just think we need to kind of say this and then park it, we'll sure. come back. Yep. But there are plenty, plenty of people right now who are saying, I don't believe in the virgin birth and I don't believe in the creation. Right. So the fact that you're going to try to prove one with the other mm-hmm. uh, isn't going to really be super helpful to me. But let me, for, we'll come back to that. But sure. first, let me ask this question. Um, <clears throat> why is the virgin birth so important? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's absolutely essential for us in order to understand the nature of Jesus and in, and in him being the one in whom salvation uh, could be made possible. We understand and esteem here that all human beings are separated from God in our sinfulness, right? Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, the first people, but everyone individually is guilty because of our own personal rebellion against God, and we are destined because of that for just and deserved punishment for all eternity in hell. That is the reality that we esteem here because of our own sinfulness. Now, in the Old Testament time, God, in his grace, had established a way that sacrifice could be made for sin. 
and through the shedding of the blood of animals, God's wrath was appeased and mm. forgiveness could be received. And the writer of the, of, uh, the book of Hebrews details this for us in Hebrews 9.22. He writes, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified, purified with blood. And here it is. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a key verse, isn't it? it? Is. That latter part is That's just right. so important. That's right. Yeah. Now, that system, that Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't perfect, of course, right? Because sacrifice had to be made constantly so that forgiveness could be received. And so what we needed was one perfect and completely acceptable sacrifice that could be made on behalf of those who were guilty before God to completely appease his wrath and to pay the sin debt that all humanity owed. But this sacrifice had to be different than all of the others. Right, and in fact, what we know from the Old Testament, which is the sacrificial system that God set up for people to be in relationship with, Israel was to practice these things, the yep. people were to do them. Every one of those sacrifices was, in effect, a prophecy pointing toward that one. That's right. The, the word we use is efficacious, effective, mm -hmm. acceptable, complete, final sacrifice for sin that was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Yeah, and that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul clarifies for us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, for our sake, he, speaking of God the Father, made him, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of yeah, God. Yeah. And, and Jesus was, was born of a human okay, with complete human nature, but not conceived as a human, so he is without sin. He wasn't born into it. Fully God in his divinity and his perfection, but fully human in every sense as well. He was conceived in the womb of a woman. He was carried for nine months. He was birthed into this world, helpless and entirely reliant for survival. He grew naturally in the same way that we all do, physically and mentally as well. And, 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 and let, me, let me interrupt here, sure. because people in Nazareth who were watching Jesus grow up, they didn't see him as Messiah. They didn't think there was anything really unusual about him. He was right. just another kid growing up in the town of Nazareth. Yeah. That's right, and, and Isaiah details that for us actually in Isaiah 53, verse 2, when, when he says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, outwardly looking, Jesus wasn't that right. special, right? Right, he, right? He grew naturally, physically, and mentally, yet with one great difference, of course, he was without sin. Right. And in all of that, he never sinned. There were, there were no temper tantrums. There was no, there's no terrible twos. Which okay? you're living out right now. Currently living in, yeah. yeah. There's... No disrespectful back talk. There was no right. lying. There was no cheating. There was no lusting, no bad attitude, none of it, right? Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest, which is the office that Jesus currently has at the right hand of the throne of the Father. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So the people in Nazareth would have just seen him as a really great kid. Yeah. Like a really good really kid. Really good kid. Like, yep. like, like, why aren't Joseph and Mary teaching a parenting class at synagogue? Right. Like that, right. that, exactly. like that good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it was Jesus's humanity yeah. that qualified him to be the sacrifice for us. And his perfection enabled him to be the, the substitutionary atonement, we would call it, on our behalf. And mm -hmm. that Jesus stood in our place to, to atone, okay, to pay for our sins. And that is what then justifies us in the eyes of God, declares us to be righteous as Jesus takes our sinfulness and we receive his sinlessness in the great transaction done by God's grace through faith. And, and all of that is not possible if Jesus was born into sin. Right. 
That would not be possible if Jesus had been born through the regular means that one is conceived and born into this world. Right? All of that is not possible if Jesus is not fully human as well. He would not be able to stand in our place if he is not one of us. But he is, and we can be saved through him, for us all to God's glory. Yeah, and that's awesome, because that's, that just encapsulates the gospel. That right. is the gospel, the good news that we have. And one of our elders said to me a couple of weeks ago, because, you know, you might get the sense when you hear the preaching here, we're just, we're, it's the gospel over and over again, and we're just telling you about the gospel. And one of the elders said to me after a service a few weeks ago, I never get tired of hearing the gospel. I never get, hear, get tired of hearing how Jesus has made it possible for me to have the forgiveness of sins and be saved. Right. And that's, that's why this is so beautiful. Okay, now back to this. So that's, we're answer, we've answered the question, mm -hmm. you know, why then a virgin birth? Why is that so important to us? Yep. Um, it's so important because the entire salvation message keys on Jesus' perfection yes. and that virgin birth. Yep. So back to that other question. Isn't believing in a creator in a creator God, isn't that outdated? That's yeah. the question. Yeah, that was a good question. And, and I, I would love to take this question to like the rest of the world where Christianity is growing at an incredible rate, right? You know, for example, uh, many experts say that by 2030, China will have more believers than the United States, mm. okay? Which is an incredible thing to think about. But sociologists from 40 years ago expected that religion would be on the decline as the world became more modernized and then post-modernized, right? As people, as people began to become more educated and more scientific, they expected religion to just slowly die out. And while that, that is the case in, in some ways here in the Western world, the number of people who call themselves Christians is still increasing across the globe today. Mm -hmm. now, Christianity remains the most widespread and, and culturally diverse belief system in the world. 31% of human beings living on earth would, would categorize themselves broadly as, as Christian. And that's approximately spread evenly across uh, Asia, Europe, North and South America, and Africa. China, as we mentioned, is, is the place in the world where Christianity is growing at the fastest rate. And some experts believe that it will be a communist China, that it will be a majority Christian country by 2060. Now, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And all of this should be a news flash for us to see that, that the Western world is no longer the center for Christianity. I mean, if we needed evidence of that, you can just look at the fact that Bill C-4 was passed through the legislative system in our country this week shockingly fast. Mm -hmm. It is going to be harder and harder to be a Christian here. This is not a Christian country. And the truths that we have founded our lives on will be tested, and so we need to buckle up, quite honestly. That's right. And while that's happening in, in, in Canada and, and the U.S. and Europe, the West, as we would, as we would categorize it, um, by 2060, again, experts say that the percentage of people across the world identifying as Christian is, is set to increase, albeit marginally, from 31 to 32 percent. Uh, the number of people identifying uh, as Islam is set to raise from 24 to 31 percent by 2060. And a lot of that is just is birth rate. Right. Not yeah. necessarily conversion, but Correct. birth rate. But then get this. The number of people who identify as atheist or agnostic is predicted to decline from 16 to 13%. That's intriguing. Now, while they, while they differ significantly on, on critical points, 
the three major monotheistic religions in our world, that being Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, they make up well over half of the world's population. And all agree on the fact that there is one creator God. And so we could say, long story short, that the answer to the question of, is believing in a creator God outdated? Absolutely not. It continues to increase and grow in our world today. Now, just because everybody believes something, that doesn't make it true, of course. But it does mean that we can't just dismiss the belief in a creator God because it's outdated, when in fact it is increasing in our world today. Right. So, so science um, hasn't reduced these aspects of the Bible to the status of mythology, though some people believe so. Yep. It's not at the status of allegory where we look at the creation or the virgin birth and say, that's a really nice allegory or an analogy or an illustration of something. And you those know. who would claim, claim to believe that are a significant minority. Right, sure. right, right. And so we're, we're not just taking those things and putting them in the realm of the figurative, but they are, they're literal. The creation happened, the virgin birth right. you know, happened. And so, so a lot, what we've established, a lot of people believe in God yep. around the world, but I want to dig a little deeper into this because we're here in the West. We live in the West. We're proclaiming a gospel into a Western con context that is increasingly anti-Christian, not just post-Christian. Right. But hasn't, here's the next question, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Yeah. Well, again, you know, an easy answer to big this topic. question. It is. It's a big question that many yeah. people ask, but an, and an easy answer would be that Christianity laid the framework for modern science. Hmm. It was Roger Bacon and William Ockham, two 13th century Franciscan friars, which would have just been Catholic monks, essentially, who were the ones that laid the foundation for the scientific method. And then it was Francis Bacon who, you know, then popularized it in the 16th century. So, so Roger Bacon and Francis Bacon. Yeah. Were those two guys related? I don't know, but... Even still, I think it's pretty awesome that two guys named Bacon laid the, the foundation for It's an amazing science. last name, it though is. it makes me hungry. It is. It is. So the beginnings, the beginnings of, of what we would consider to be modern science today came about because scientists back then believed that a rational, consistent God created everything in a rational, consistent way. They believed that we could discover the ways those ways, those rational, consistent ways, as they studied certain aspects of the world and the order in which they operate. Now, atheists will believe that they will believe that it's natural causes that explain what happens in the world. They dismiss anything supernatural unequivocally. But the first modern scientists, those who laid the foundation of science, believed exactly the opposite. They believed that everything was supernaturally caused. That's important. So the natural law, or yep. the universal laws that right. we see, these original, these scientists who also had faith would believe that those natural laws or universal laws are rooted in God, That's right. in, who God in yep. who God is. That's exactly right. So I have a feeling, just as you're saying all of this, and as, as we read it in the chapter, I, I just have a feeling that the history of the scientific method which you just gave us, like, like devoted Christians were the ones who developed the scientific method. Yeah. I just have a feeling that that part of the history of the scientific method is not being taught in our high schools, colleges, and universities. Yeah, you're is right. Is that fair to say? Safe to say that for sure. And, yeah. and McLaughlin kind of details all of this through a conversation that she actually has with, with, I can get this, I love it, with a Princeton professor who is a philosopher of science. 
And he writes, his name's Hans Halverson, he writes, the first modern scientists didn't exclude supernatural causes from their experiments because they believed there were no supernatural causes, but because they believed that everything was supernaturally caused. Their question wasn't, is God working here, but how is God working here? Amazing. And they believe that because, again, God is rational and consistent and ruling over all things, that we can discover what is true about our world by doing the same experiments in different places and situations and getting the same results. And then on top of that, we understand that we are created in God's image. And that's important because, as Johannes Kepler explains, God created us in his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. God created us with the ability to know how this world came to be. Which is unique in all of the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you're, you may love your dog, but he's not sitting around trying to figure out how Correct. he was made or where he came from. Correct. Correct. And the awesome thing about all of this is, is that you can find Christians leading in many scientific fields. Right. You know, science and, and faith, science is not devoid of faith. And, and those scientists marry their faith in God who created all things with their understanding of science, and they see them as complementary, not, not in competition with one another. And one of those people is Russell Calburn, who's the professor of experimental physics at Cambridge, and he wrote this, science is the description of how God chooses to work most of the time. But he is sovereign, and he can choose to work in any way he likes. And there are special times and places where he will behave differently the most important one being the resurrection of Jesus. We know that dead bodies don't come back to life according to science, and yet Christianity is built on the observation that Jesus came back to life. And I am very happy to say at that special moment, God was acting differently. Mm. And the same can be said, by the way, of the virgin birth. God was acting differently. And what Cowburn and Halverson both agree on, and what so many others in the scientific fields agree on, is that Christianity and science go together. Because without a sovereign, all-powerful God, there is no reason that science should work. Right? That science doesn't disprove the reality of the supernatural, but proves it. And if you, I mean, if you think about it, believing in a creator God is decidedly more easier than believing that the billions of stars and planets and galaxies we have in the universe were created by, you know, say, some random explosion. Right, a spontaneous act that yep. just happened to happen. Yeah, I love right. that line that you just said, like, without a sovereign, all-powerful God, there is no reason that science should work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the funny thing is that when the Big Bang Theory, for example, was first um, proposed, it was, first of all, it was proposed by a leading Catholic scientific right. researcher, yep. and, and he proposed this Big Bang Theory, and it was atheistic scientists who originally rejected the Big Bang Theory mm-hmm. because it sounded too much like Genesis 1, yeah. God saying, let there be light, and from nothing, something was created. Yeah. So the atheist looked at that and said, no, 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 that's just, that's just Genesis 1 all that's over right. again. Yeah. And, and, and so that was the origin of the Big Bang Theory. And physicist Stephen Hawking, who's a name that many of you may recognize, he, he wrote about the beginning of the world and, and the existence of reality in this way. It's coming up on the screen. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper. 
and set the universe going. Like Hawking's point here is that there are laws like gravity, he argues, that exist eternally and are transcendent over all things. And those laws prove the existence of reality and that things can be spontaneously created. He's essentially saying that there are eternal, non-physical realities that create physical reality. And I mean, that just sounds a whole lot to me like a creator God. Look, but I hear that, and it sounds like Hawking is arguing our point. He's making the point for us. That's right. It's so shocking that he would. And, and what you see in a lot of, of these um, scientists as they're writing, these atheistic evolutionary scientists, is mm-hmm. they're, they're doing these mental gymnastics, intellectual gymnastics, in, in order to um, tell us that the origin was not God, yeah. but it sure sounds an awful lot like Everything God. Everything they can, that's right. Everything they can to avoid saying that, sounding like a theist, sounding like there is mm-hmm. a God behind all of this. And, and as I was reading this, I, I, I went back to something Aristotle said. Aristotle wrote about, of course, he was not a, a worshiper of God, right. Greek philosopher. Aristotle talked about the unmoved mover because mm-hmm. Aristotle recognized there are laws in place, but where did those laws come from? There had to be something behind all of that. And it's, again, it's like they're trying so desperately to find a solution to origins that doesn't include God, but they still need someone or something to start it. Yeah. For Hawking, it's these universal principles mm-hmm. that are eternal to him. Yeah. And um, you really like McLaughlin. I like McLaughlin as well as an apologist. Um, but my favorite is John Lennox, and he's a British mathematician. I've quoted him here before. Um, but here, here's what John Lennox said. He said, of course, I reject atheism because I believe Christianity to be true. But I also reject it because I'm a scientist. How could I be impressed with a worldview that... that um, that undermines the very rationality we need to do science. Mm. Science and God mix very well. It is science and atheism that do not mix. That's an awesome quote. It is. It is. And then, you know, to take a, a step further, you know, for, for us as, as Christians, of course, we know that God didn't just, as Hawking said, light the blue touch paper and, and then just, you know, getting the universe going and leaving it all to fend for itself right? Instead, God rules and reigns over all creation, and he is sovereignly and providentially orchestrating all of time and history, and intimately involved in caring for his creation. But on top of all of that, he cares for us. Mm -hmm. He cares for us as tiny little in the scope of the grandeur of creation, insignificant but specially created beings that he put on this earth. So much so that he would send his one and only son, God the Son, down to this single planet inhabited by those he made specially. And his son would come as a human being, God in the flesh, God incarnate, born of a virgin, laid in a feeding trough. And as we read in Matthew 1, to 23, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Hmm. And that name, that name Emmanuel, it means God with us. It's an incredible truth to consider, that not only did God create all of this, but he cares so intimately 
and so much and loves us so much that he would send his only son to be with us. And I'll leave Rebecca to summarize this for us. She writes, when we contemplate that the eternal God out there with the power to create billions of stars and planets would become a tiny baby down here, born to live with us and die for us because he loves us, the only right response is to worship. Mm -hmm. We had a chance to do that just earlier. King of Kings, one of my favorite songs, declares this truth so amazingly. And when I hear this, all I want to do is sing Mm -hmm. because it's just so amazing and so wonderful. But Pastor Todd, let me turn this back on you and let me ask you this this final question as we wrap things up here. Because I think that you're going to like answering this question, Mm -hmm. or part of it anyway. Mm -hmm. What about the other nativity miracles? You mean like the Magi and the Star? You betcha. It's like my favorite. These are the right. rock stars of the, of the story as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. I love these guys. Um, but by that, you mean also, like we mentioned off the top, the angelic appearances, the visions right. and dreams that were received, but yep. also these stargazing Magi. And in uh, Matthew chapter 2, this is where we read in the first part of that chapter, we read you know, their story after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or Magi, Uh, from the east, so think the area of Babylon, uh, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come uh, to worship him. So we think about these magi, and the reason why they're so important in this particular message is because they were, in essence, scientists. We're talking about science and faith and how that all works together and how the Lord is behind it all. But these magi were scientists in their day. And we often think of them kind of first as astrologers. So they're reading the stars. This is astrology. They're reading the stars in order to like write horoscopes kind of thing, which, you know, we put in the category of of nonsense. Um, But in addition, in the ancient times, the astrologers were also astronomers. The two disciplines, if I can call them that, were actually merged together. So while they were looking at the stars, yes, to write predictions about things, but they were also charting the courses of the stars and the planets, and they were looking at heavenly bodies, and they were recording all of this and studying it very, very deeply so that their observations became scientific observations of the day with respect to astronomy, not astrology. And they were also, beyond their work in the sciences, they were also advisors to kings and even powerful enough at certain times in history to be kingmakers themselves. They would be deciding who was taking thrones and who wasn't. And so when 500 years, some 500 years before Jesus was born, the Jews were carried into exile in Babylon where these magi did their work. And when the Jews came, the magi, so hungry for new knowledge, would have met with Jewish leaders, would have met with rabbis, would have looked into the scrolls that the Jews were carrying with them and would have learned the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And in the Torah, they would have read a verse in, in Numbers 27, 24, 17 about this star that was to appear and a scepter that would appear in Judah. Well, this was an indication of a king being born, and this merged their two favorite things. They loved looking at the stars and interpreting things, and they were also involved in power and advising kings. You put those two things together, they're thrilled. They see this verse and they go, a day is coming when a certain star is going to rise, and when it rises, there's going to be a new king who's born in Israel. And when that time comes, we want to be there because we're kingmakers. This is what we do. 
500 years discovering this truth and then passing it down, generation after generation of magi, learning this, watching the skies for this star that would appear. And then it appears. We read about that in Matthew chapter 2. And when they see the star, which we've talked before about whether or not that was a constellation of certain planets that came together, there was an indication of what was happening there. Whatever it was, when they saw that star, they immediately knew what to do. It wasn't like the star needed to lead them to Jerusalem. They knew the prophecy was a Jewish prophecy. And so they left Babylon, big entourage. They made their way to Jerusalem because that's the seat of power. And they went to the king, Herod. That's what chapter 2 tells us. They went to Herod and they said, okay, we heard that the king's born, star rose, fulfillment of prophecy. Where did it take place exactly? Herod doesn't know. And so he goes and talks to the scribes. He says, where, where is this king supposed to be born? They take him to, to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and say it's Bethlehem. So they make their way. They say, we're going to go. And it's only like eight kilometers away. So they're going to make their way to Bethlehem. And as soon as they start making their way, the star appears again. This time, it seems to be moving. So if it was a constellation of some kind originally, now it's something that's actually moving and comes to rest over the house where Mary and Joseph are now living in Bethlehem. Jesus is now 18 to 24 months old. But the star is like pointing right to the house, right to the place. Miraculous. That's a miraculous event that God has done. And again, when we look at the, the miracle of that star and what happened, that's a lesser miracle than than the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is a lesser miracle than the creation. But because we can have confidence in the creation, in what God has done in the world, we can have confidence in all of these miracles. Now, I'd love to talk about the angels too, because that's, it's kind of cool as well, not nearly as cool as the Magi, so I'm not going to say much about it, but obviously heavenly messengers coming and meeting with Mary and sending dreams to Joseph and then appearing to the shepherds in a, in a, in a way to tell them about the birth and then later on to kind of rejoice with them and to commission them. I mean, it's all very miraculous and it's all very awesome at what God is doing. It's all within the realm of the miracles. Again, quite a bit less of a miracle than the creation or the virgin birth. And all of it pointing to the power of God who created all things. And here's what a professor of physics and astronomy, again, a scientist who believes in Jesus, professor of physics and astronomy at the University of California at Irvine, his name is Jonathan Fang, he said this, what's truly amazing about the Christian faith is the idea that the God who made the universe from quarks to galaxies also cares enough about us to be born as a human and to suffer and die to bring forgiveness and new life to broken people. And when I hear all of this, I mean, my faith has just increased. My confidence in the Word of God and the Gospels and the Nativity stories increased. But then I realize we move about every single day amongst family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors who do not believe this story. And when they don't believe this story, they're without hope, living, living lives of, of emptiness and, and desperation and meaninglessness without this explanation of the miracles, and without God, without Jesus Christ at the center of all of it. We've been talking this morning, obviously, can, you know, can we believe the virgin birth? Can we believe in the miraculous parts of, of the Christmas story and really of, of Scripture as a whole? And, and to tie, kind of just summarize this and tie a bow on it, I want to read one quote that is 
decidedly striking for the both of us this week. Mm. This is Glenn Scribner. He says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Yeah. What are you going to believe in? I feel like that's a line we could think about all week long. Yeah. Choose your miracle. Every one of us needs to choose our miracle. That's really the challenge. So let's think about that um, as we go into this week and as we contemplate all of these things. Uh, God's done an amazing, amazing work here that yeah. we can have uh, full confidence in. Um, the book, uh, again, I just want to say this, and I'm going to pray in just, in just a moment, but uh, again, the book is available. We've been giving this out, so if this is your first week here with us and you've not received a copy of the book, uh, we still have some copies left, so uh, grab uh, one of these on your way out. But I want to say this, like we don't want any of these to be left by the end of the fourth week, which is next Sunday. And so if you have a plan for some, you'd like to put them in gift baskets that you're making up for someone, or you'd like to hand them out to neighbors and invite them to the Christmas Eve service, or you have some friends or family member that would like one, uh, some coworkers, go ahead and take what you need. Our goal here is not to be left with any by the end of this series. And so take what you need this morning in order to hand these out. And, um, and if you're watching on the live stream or on demand this week, stop by our office this week. Yolanda would love to put a copy of this book into your hands. She'll have some in the office. And if you're not in the area and you're watching, uh, just send an email to freebook at harvestberry.ca and Yolanda will pop one in the mail to you uh, this week and we'll get that to you as soon as we can. And I think that we can agree, like even writing this this week, so much, so much of this content is so compelling, right? And it's, and it's great to be able to go back and review through it. And, and like we said, McLaughlin's book is the inspiration for the series. Most of what we talked about is, is in this book. Yeah. And so it'd be great for you to go through this week, but also to be able to give to those people that you know who are skeptics, right? Who are seeking these things out, have these questions. That'd be really valuable for sure. Right, and the video and audio of this series, it's all available on our website. So again, you can access that if you've missed uh, message one or two, or you want to point someone else uh, to this series as well and certainly invite them to take in uh, the last message in this series uh, next Sunday. All right, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll be done here today. Father, so uh, very grateful for your kindness toward us in giving us this beautiful story, a story rooted in who you are, a story rooted in you doing things differently outside of the natural laws that you've set up. And God, I pray that as believers, we would have increasing confidence in what you've written to us, what you've given to us, the story you've told. Increasing confidence in your son who gave his life for us, who became human like us, and identifies us with us in every way. We're grateful for that. And God, I'd would continue to pray for those who are asking questions and not quite there yet and not believing. And Father, you would break through that and save those who are lost. Father, that you would speak to those who are struggling to find meaning in life, feel the emptiness of it, and who are desiring something more. Father, the emptiness of atheism it's not the way. It's leading people into eternal death. And so God, give us boldness to share this message and work by your Holy Spirit to convince many this Christmas 
God, that's the miracle we want to see. You've, you've recorded the miracles of the creation, the nativity for us, and many, many others. But God, the miracle we need to see this Christmas is hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That you would save them. And so God, please do that. Let us be a witness to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.